0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy.
1: Thank you for joining us for ASHP Advocating for Impact podcast, where every episode covers a policy issue impacting the practice of pharmacy. My name is Nick Gentile, I am ASHP's Director of the Political Action Committee and Grassroots Engagement, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Advocacy and Pharmacy Podcast. With me today are Tom Krause, Vice President of Government Relations, and Doug Hune, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs for ASHP. Thank you for joining us today, Tom and Doug. Let's get started and talk about today's topic, the reintroduction of the Pharmacy and Medically Underserved Areas Enhancement Act, or numerically, HR 2759 and S1362. So Doug, can you give us some background on federal provider status efforts in previous years?
2: Thanks, Nick. As many of you know, provider status has been one of the key priorities for us over the past few years. Most recently, in 2020, we led an effort to incorporate some very narrow provider status language in some of the economic COVID stimulus bills. Uh, Specifically, we tried to reimburse pharmacists under Medicare Part B for their services with COVID and influenza testing. Unfortunately, that particular effort didn't come to fruition for, for various reasons, but we are Happy to say that we've we've embarked on some new efforts to introduce more broad provider status language into this current Congress. As many of you may recall, this is actually not a new effort. Back in the 113th Congress, the House introduced a provider status bill and in the 114th and 115th Congress, both the House and the Senate introduced similar bills that basically would allow for pharmacists to be reimbursed on the Medicare Part B. Unfortunately, uh, under the 116th Congress, the bill was not reintroduced, but we are leading efforts to essentially uh, reintroduce that in the 117th Congress.
1: Thanks, Doug. So we've heard a little bit about some of the history of this bill and, and this effort. What is different about the opportunity to advance this legislation now, Tom?
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nick. You know, so, you know, some of these efforts that Doug was referring to, they go back, you know, the better part of a decade. And I think what's different now is that, well, well, really two things. I think it's, number one, you know, we're currently in an environment where pharmacists are just highly visible in the response to COVID. You know, I think we're seeing patients having a lot of interactions with pharmacists. You know, they, they always have, but I think there's there's the kind of a new sort of a kind of acute awareness of pharmacists as a point of access to care. And we're also seeing just really dramatic shifts In state recognition of pharmacists, right? Part of that is due to the COVID 19 pandemic, right? In the context of COVID, we've seen states use emergency authorities and the federal government use authorities to make sure that pharmacists nationwide are able to order COVID, flu, and a few other tests for point of care tests for infectious diseases. You know, we've seen Nationwide expansions of the role of pharmacists in vaccination, including childhood vaccines—that's that's significant unto itself. But also, you know, in the in the decades since we started this provider status effort, we have seen states that have expanded prescriptive authority. You know, we've now got um, all but one state with collaborative practice legislation. We've got you know states that are leveraging pharmacists to dispense pep and prep for hiv we've got smoking cessation you know we've got kind of more active roles of ph- pharmacist in telehealth you know providing medication management services via telehealth so there's just all these things going on that states are trying to better leverage that role of the pharmacist but medicare is just sort of archaic and stuck in in the past and is it just every year it's farther and farther out of step with what state policymakers are doing. It's farther and farther out of step with how practices, uh, care is delivered and kind of pharmacists playing a role on kind of integrated care teams within within health systems. And so I think there's just, uh, you know, those, those kind, of, kind of combination of factors, the the increased visibility of pharmacists during COVID and just the increasing recognition of the role of pharmacists from states, they're really starting to kind of put a a bigger and bigger gap between where the states are and and where Medicare is. And then uh, just building on the states, you know, we've also seen several states that have directly addressed payment for pharmacists, either through their own Medicaid programs or as a requirement for commercial payers in their states. And so that creates this situation where we can go to Congress and say, "Look, this is about giving Medicare beneficiaries the same access to care that other people have in this state." Because members of Congress don't want to be in a position of having to explain to to seniors in their community why they are not allowed to get the same access to care that other patients are. So, I mean, I think I think that combination of, of things is why the situation and the environment is different now. Thanks, Tom. So,
1: Doug, now let's get to the meat and potatoes of the issue. Can you give a brief summary of the legislation that has just been introduced in both the House and the Senate this past week? Sure, Nick.
2: As we mentioned before, we're trying to take a broader approach to provider status. And with that, as many of you know, physicians and some non-physician healthcare professionals in the past were reimbursed for their healthcare care service under Medicare Part B. And with some very limited exceptions, pharmacists are not reimbursed in the same manner. As a result, the lack of reimbursement of pharmacists for services provided within their state scope of practice unnecessarily limits patient access to certain healthcare services. So this bill would allow pharmacists to be reimbursed for certain healthcare services under Part B and medically underserved areas. Specifically, the bill would allow for Part B reimbursement in medically underserved areas, medically underserved populations, or health professional shortage areas as designated by HERSA. I do want to emphasize the fact that the bill does not expand the types of services pharmacists can provide, and pharmacists would still be governed by their state scope of practice law. So again, it, it is primarily the same legislation that was introduced in both the 114th and 115th Congress. And as we mentioned before, it, it did receive pretty broad bipartisan support, and based on conversations with with lawmakers in both the House and the Senate, we're hoping that it can do the same in the 117th Congress.
1: Great. So Doug, who are the sponsors of both the House and Senate bills?
2: So this on the Senate side, we have the bill led by Senator Chuck Grassley, who of course was a former Senate finance chair, and he was one of the original lead sponsors of of both the bills that were introduced in the 114th and 115th Congress the Democratic lead is Senator Casey, as well as Senator Brown. Again, these were were sponsors that were a a part of the original sponsorship list. On the House side, we have a new lead and Representative Butterfield. The previous lead was Representative Brett Guthrie. Due to some some various uh, considerations, he could not lead the bill on the House side this time around. And on the Republican side, the bill is led by Representative McKinley from West Virginia.
1: Thanks, Doug. So, Tom, what is the strategy ASHP will be taking to garner
0: support for these bills? Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So, you know, there's a few different components of the strategy. So, so first of all, as I mentioned, I think it is really important to point out the role that pharmacists are playing right now in COVID response and kind of make that really apparent to policymakers, and then point out this this delta that's emerged as states expand scope of practice, expand emergency authorities for pharmacists, but but Medicare fails to keep pace. Right? It's important that policymakers at the federal level recognize that, and particularly how it impacts patients in their own state. Right? It's 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 definitely influential when we can say to a member, "Look, your state legislature." expanded authority for pharmacists to p- provide PEP and PrEP. They re- provided some flexibilities for pharmacists to practice in, in you know various ways with their care teams, pursuing legislation around test and treat for, for influenza, or expanding access to uh, COVID testing via pharmacists. But oh, by the way, uh, Medicare beneficiaries are restricted in all of those different aspects, right? That's That's not a good outcome. And that's I think, an important piece of, of the story to explain to policymakers. You know, I think among the pharmacy community, you know, we often think about this as provider status and we, we you know, we invest a lot of energy in kind of in trying to explain the capabilities and competencies of, of pharmacists and the education and their accessibility. And all of those things are true, but what really resonates with policymakers is to understand you know, the impact that this would have for their constituents, that is Medicare beneficiaries. I also want to point out that this piece of legislation is not the only factor uh, contributing to advancement of payment for pharmacists, right? So there is direct payment authority under Medicare Part B, that's this bill, the bills that we're talking about. There are also, you know, other efforts like, you know, continuing to support efforts at the state level to expand scope of practice and to uh, reimburse care that is already authorized in those states. And, you know, year after year, we see incremental progress there. And that is, that should be celebrated in its own right. But every time there is progress at the state level, it's another reason to turn around and go back to Medicare and say, hey, Medicare, you are further and further out of step with what the states are doing. You know, there's also a recognition from Medicare that they need to create Pharmacist-specific billing codes. Even if there's not this legislation passed, you know, Medicare has, has kind of recognized that. And so that is an area that we are working with them on. And then, and then finally, ASHP is working very closely with an organization called GTMRX that's get the medications right. And this is a multi-stakeholder group with pharmacy organizations, payers, drug manufacturers, test manufacturers, all focused on improving access to medication management. And that uh, coalition is trying to kind of work on any ways that we can ensure that there's adequate payment for medication management services. And so while that is not directly related to this legislation, it is absolutely a building block to making sure that pharmacists are recognized and their services are paid for so that more patients can, can benefit from access to those, to those pharmacy services. Thanks, Tom.
1: So, Doug, you previously
0: identified
1: the sponsors of both the House and Senate bills. Who are the members of Congress that are most important for the success of the legislation, and why are they the most important?
2: Yeah, so this this is a sort of a tricky question. Um, So the short answer is, is, you know, one of the things that that we've been looking to do is, is focus on folks that have been supportive of this piece of legislation in the past. But as I mentioned earlier, sometimes, you know, based on the dynamics and and the change in leadership, some of those folks aren't able to necessarily lead those efforts uh, this time around. You know, so a great example would be the the Republican lead in the the past few Congresses, uh, Brent Guthrie. He is now a ranking member on Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee. So it it precludes him from from kind of stepping out in front of a lot of these, these policy issues, you know, as opposed to him being able to do so in the past. And and this is this is something that's that's fairly ubiquitous across Congress in general. You know, unfortunately, the higher up you are sometimes in leadership, the less likely you are to, to step in front and lead certain types of legislation. So with that said, you know, when you look at some of the key players in both the House and the Senate side, you know, we don't necessarily expect, you know, for example, uh, Chairman Neal from from Ways and Means to to step out and 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 be a lead supporter of this or we don't expect a representative uh, Pallone to do the same thing. But it's not to say that they can't get involved. And so on another level, you know, you look at some folks that are high up in leadership that have pretty prominent roles that aren't necessarily considered ultimately too high ranking where that they, they couldn't get, get out in front of some of these policy issues. An example of that would be on the energy and commerce side. You look at, uh, you know, the health chair representative issue, who actually was one of the Original sponsors of the previous iterations in the 114th and 115th Congress. You look at somebody, for example, on the Ways and Means side, like the Health Chair uh, Lloyd Doggett, who again is another person that was instrumental and in, in, in signing on to this effort in the past. Similarly, the ranking member on, on Ways and Means, Representative News, was a, was another representative that that signed on as well. Now, so when you look at the, on the Senate side, as we as we mentioned earlier, you know one of the good things. Is that you know we have some strong support on the Senate side in both some of the key of jurisdictions such as Senate Finance and Senate Health, but but also on a broad level as well. So again, you're not necessarily going to get you know the Chuck Schumer's of the world to 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 be leads, but you can get other folks that 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 play some key roles. Senator
3: Wyden, for example, would would be someone that, you know, we could potentially look to, but of course he might be restricted based on his position as chair of Senate finance. But alternatively, you know, you, maybe you could look at somebody on, on the minority side, such as ranking member Crapo to help out within the committee structures, you know, uh, on Senate help, for example, you know, you, you, you can look to, to folks that, again, that have been supportive in the past the, the chair of Senate health, Debbie Stabenow was a, was a previous supporter of this particular legislation as was uh, ranking member, Steve Daines. And so, it just kind of gives you a broad idea of some of the folks that we we might be looking to. Um, you know, it's a, it's a careful balance of folks that are high enough to, to to make an impact. You know, where others could follow their lead, but not too high, where they're kind of restricted politically from from you know taking a lead role in this particular uh, legislation. But again, just because they may not necessarily you know be in those lead roles, it doesn't mean that they can't uh, you know ultimately sign on and be supportive. So. We're basically looking at you know again some of the key players and those key committees of jurisdiction, particularly within the healthcare subcommittees, and particularly within folks that have been supportive in the past and and you know and that might be supportive in the future. And again, if you look at the the, the basis of this bill, it's, it's it's there to to help out you know the rural areas. I, I think that you can look to a lot of key committee members that reside in areas you know with, with the heavy. A density population of, uh, you know, rural constituents, both on the, uh, you know, the House level and also on the Senate level as well.
1: Thanks, Doug. That was really great insight. And so, Tom, for the final question, you know, the million dollar question, what can ASHP members do to help this effort move forward?
0: Yeah. So, you know, some of the, the uh, kind of the different uh, members of Congress that Doug was mentioning and, you know, navigating all these kind of inside political issues, members don't have to worry about that, right? That's, that's, uh, that's why we have Doug to help us uh, navigate those issues. I think really what, what members can do is just, uh, you know, be out there talking about it, like send a, send a letter to your member of Congress, whomever they are. And, you know, ASHP um, sends, calls to action that allow you to send a, a note to your member of Congress raising awareness of this issue. You know, there is there is one active right now, and we'll, we can provide a link to it in the notes to the podcast. Send that note to, to your members of Congress. Let them know that this is something you care about. If there's an opportunity in your community to uh, write an op-ed or a letter to the editor about, you know, what pharmacists are doing in your community and, and why it's a problem that Medicare beneficiaries can't To access those services because of a federal barrier, you know, communicating with physicians in your practice and your practice team. If you have a good collaborative relationship there, you know, let them know that this is an effort that's important. You know, if it would financially benefit a practice you work in, let them know about that right because uh, we need we need those physician allies to be supportive of us as well so i think you know you can think about doing some of those that messaging to members of congress but also just within your own community you know talk about it talk about why it matters you know tell your leadership at your institution about how it would change the 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 dynamics of your your services you know if you prov- if you're in an ambulatory care setting and you are trying to provide medication management uh, services and you are struggling to make that financially viable, you know, talk to the medical director in that in that group and, and explain that, hey, having the ability for to bill for pharmacist services would would provide uh, an additional stream of revenue to support The care that you all are trying to provide, Um, you know, and and same goes for community pharmacists, right? So, if you're in in a community setting and you are wanting to be able to provide greater access to some of the different services that might be authorized in your state, whether that is COVID testing, whether that is kind of other elements of a practice, you know, if there's an if there's an opportunity there that you're not able to fully realize because of a lack of payment, talk about that in your um, in your own institution let folks know that it matters and let folks know that there is a bill out there that would address exactly that concern. Thanks, Tom.
1: Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Tom Krause and Doug Hune for joining us today to discuss the reintroduction of the Pharmacy and Medically Underserved Areas Enhancement Act. Be sure that your voice is heard. Visit ASHP.org to learn more about key issues, grassroots efforts, and uh, ways that you can get involved in ASHP's advocacy efforts. Thanks, and have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and wanna hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.